You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me as usual, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing very well. Doing very well. I'm looking forward to um, revisiting something on the podcast that uh, I've been wanting to talk about for a few weeks, actually. So as some listeners might be aware, the U.S. Department of Defense has, I believe, for a few years now, been releasing an annual report to Congress on Chinese military developments. Uh, Effectively, it's a nice, unclassified look at the balance of power in East Asia, focusing specifically on Chinese military capabilities. Uh, I find this report to be quite useful, even though it doesn't include uh, the full gamut of uh, cutting-edge developments in Chinese military um, capabilities. It does offer a very good high-level glimpse at uh, where things are going in China with the PLA. Uh, And the PLA is still undergoing a major um, process of reform that was initiated by Xi Jinping in 2015. Um, But this document does a very good job of talking about every branch of the People's Liberation Army, China's overall strategy. Uh, It gives special attention to the balance of power across the Taiwan Strait, uh, one of the likely contingencies for a um, military conflict uh, in East Asia today, and focuses on the uh, South China Sea as well, which we'll talk a bit about. And uh, in this year's report in particular, there's some very interesting developments on the uh, nuclear front. Um, so with that said, uh, let's get right to it, Prashad. I just want to you know, spend this podcast maybe just talking a bit about some of the impressions and takeaways that we had uh, from this report. So for you, what was your, uh, what's your like top line takeaway here? I mean, I think it's actually quite similar to recent years in many ways at the top line, right? It's very much focused on uh, Chinese conventional capabilities, even though there are very interesting findings on the nuclear side. But but what's your kind of 30,000 foot takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the big thing uh, for me is, uh, as you noted, this is something that's an annual report. So really, the, the chief uh, sort of takeaways that you get are usually in terms of, you know, what really has changed from previous iterations of the report, because most of it is sort of general lines of continuity. And then secondly, you know, when the report is released, what does the overall U.S.-China relationship look like at that particular time, uh, particularly the military-to-military relationship? And I think on on, on both those counts, uh, we really have seen some significant developments under the Trump administration. And in that respect, I mean, this in this era of so-called strategic competition between the United States and China that uh, is evident in the national security strategy, and you know, subsequent statements that were being given by the administration, one of the things that comes through very clearly in the report, this iteration of the report, is the very comprehensive and sort of almost hybridization of Chinese capabilities across the board, right? So there, were, there was particular notion, uh, sort of mention about, for example, things like One Belt, One Road, and how China is using its, its sort of economic pillars of its strategy uh, in the foreign policy realm to extend into the defense realm as well. And even with respect to the South China Sea, there was a notion that the Chinese are leveraging a whole range of capabilities, not just on the military side, but economically, diplomatically, politically, to bring bring to bear pressure and, and what the report calls low-level coercion um, against some of these other claimants in the South China Sea. So I found that um, for this report, really, the the main focus was on the fact that the Chinese are really thinking very comprehensively and and sort of in a very integrated way in terms of how they're leveraging their military assets and capabilities. 
Right, right. I think I think that's I think that's all um, apt. And you know, on the point of discontinuities and changes, uh, this year's report does acknowledge, of course, the United States uh, national security strategy and national defense strategy, both of which were released after the 2017 iteration of the China report came out. Um, and we should also note that this year's report was actually quite uh, late. Uh, it came mm-hmm. out in August. In previous years, the reports have been released in either April or May. Uh, so I thought that was a bit notable. Uh, I still haven't figured out why it was delayed, but um, it probably was just held up bureaucratically at the Pentagon for a bit. Um, I'll just talk a bit about some of the things that stood out to me. I did a short piece about this at the Diplomat, so if, if readers are interested, um, I'll drop a link to that in the in the show notes uh, for this episode. But a lot of the developments that really caught my attention were uh, actually on the nuclear side. Uh, so there's actually a really big uh, revelation that just sort of popped into this report uh, and sort of came out of nowhere. We didn't see it in the uh, DNI's worldwide threat assessment or the recent uh, testimony by um, the chief of the DIA earlier this year, but apparently the People's Liberation Army Air Force once again officially has a nuclear mission. Um, so a lot of our listeners might have assumed that China is a triad power, uh, that it has nuclear delivery capabilities at air, land, and sea, but that actually wasn't true and hasn't been true since, um, we think, the 1980s when the uh, Chinese Air Force was phased out of a nuclear mission. They used to have gravity bombs, and they stopped um, operating those uh, after a while. But now uh, the PLAAF has a new nuclear mission. We don't know exactly what capability gives it that, uh, nuclear mm-hmm. mission. Uh, so there's uh, a few things that um, I've reported to the diplomat, for example, a new air launch ballistic missile, but that hasn't seen deployment yet. It's still in the experimental and developmental phase that's going to be deployed by the mid 2020s. And that, yes, that would be a nuclear capability delivered from an experimental variant of the uh, H6K strategic bomber. But um, my best hunch is that this capability that the DoD report talks about um, as giving the PLAF a uh, nuclear mission is probably the CJ-20 air launch cruise missile. That's been hinted to have a nuclear capability in previous U.S. government documents. So that's the most likely candidate, in my view. Um, But that, I thought, was an interesting development. So China now, um, I guess, is a triad power. Uh, They still have four ballistic missile submarines um, operational, according to this year's report. That was confirmed in last year's report. Uh, I think for the first time um, that these uh, SSBNs were operational, and they likely operate just out of uh, Henan Island, at the, out of the um, the Yulin submarine base down there, operating um, JL-2 submarine launch ballistic missiles. So uh, yeah, all that was quite interesting. The other development, uh, I think for the first time we have confirmation in an unclassified mm-hmm. document that the DF-41, China's newest uh, intercontinental range ballistic missile with um, multiple warhead capabilities, is potentially being based in silos and possibly even being based on rail cars. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, I'm not sure the reasoning behind that, but possibly it has to do with develop, um, with difficulties building the uh, road mobile launchers that the DF-41 is supposed to uh, be deployed on. The DF-41 still hasn't been publicized in a Chinese military parade, so... There are a few sort of pictures that float out there on the um, on you know Weibo and a few Chinese networks uh, claiming to catch the DF-41 in the wild, but uh, China hasn't officially yet revealed this weapon uh, to the world. Um, what jumped out to you, Prashant, about the Belt and Road component of this? Because I agree with you that that was actually quite interesting to see. There's a there's a big special section on it. 
Um, and specifically, it notes that China intends to use the BRI to develop strong economic ties with other countries, shape their interests to align China's uh, to align with China's, and deter confrontation or criticism of China's approach to sensitive issues. Uh, so, and it goes on to note that some BRI investments could create potential military advantages for China. And there's no surprise that that's long been a underlying sensitivity about the Belt and Road in some of the countries that are more skeptical about the endeavor, including, let's say, uh, India and possibly even Japan uh, and the United States, certainly. But um, but what's your uh, takeaway about the Belt and Road from this report? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think the, the interesting takeaway there is uh, the report specifically mentioned that the Belt and Road Initiative was part of this sort of, um, I, th- I think the word they, that was used was a sort of shaping strategy or initiative by China to sort of use a full range of tools, you know, economic, diplomatic, political, in order to leverage that um, into defense or security-related outcomes, whether it's South China Sea or sort of other realms. And the the implication being that we should pay attention to this initiative not just as something that's purely economic in terms of infrastructure development, but as part of a coordinated Chinese strategy to influence relationships uh, between key countries in the Asia-Pacific. So we've seen that with uh, the Hamadota port in Sri Lanka. We've seen that uh, with respect to how Myanmar is dealing with some of these investments. We've seen that with Malaysia. So really across the board, um, there is this notion, I think, that that's highlighted in this report that we shouldn't just think about One Belt and One Road as an economic initiative. We should think about it as a strategic initiative which kind of, I think, dovetails with uh, one of the major points that it's also trying to raise, which is that we should really think about how the Chinese use power uh, more comprehensively than sort of separating out into the defense realms and the economic and and the political. It really is sort of an integrated fashion, uh, the way that that they're using these capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the the other thing that's interesting to note is, I mean, with respect to timing, which you mentioned, I think that's really important because... That is something that folks in Washington pay attention to. And one of the the sort of debates and discussions that were going on here as to why this was so late was whether um, the administration did not want um, a release of the report to get in the way of some of the other things that they were doing in terms of their Asia policy. So Mattis was uh, scheduled to make his his visit uh, and and did make his visit eventually to China, um, which was a, a significant uh, visit first one since 2014, I believe, by a U.S. official um, of that seniority. Um, and then subsequently, the administration was also trying to unveil its sort of Indo-Pacific strategy. And it didn't want that to be caught up in this notion of, of, of sort of its the sort of China threat narrative that the Chinese have in response to this report and, and in other fora as well, being keen to highlight that the United States and the Trump administration is really highlighting this notion of a China threat which countries in the region don't share. So this report, the eventual release date came after Mattis's trip to China, and it also came after Pompeo's unveiling of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which was initially done here at, at the Chamber of Commerce, and then his trip uh, to the region, uh, which kind of, I guess, addresses some of the notions that we've been hearing from the region as well. Some of these countries have been wary that the sort of Indo-Pacific strategy is too tethered to U.S.-China policy, mm-hmm. and that it has a very security or military bent. And so you, you did see the administration kind of unveil these more economic and diplomatic aspects of that before sort of going on this so-called China offensive, even though the, the report itself was ready months in advance. 
Right. No, I think I think that's a good way to maybe rationalize the decision to delay the release. I mean, it's a bit strange because with um, I guess with the Mattis trip, uh, right? I mean, right before that trip, actually, DOD was very publicly mm-hmm. poking China at a variety of um, forums, including the Shangri-La dialogue. It really uh, started to become a bit of a name and shame game. But I guess there are limits to how much you want to name and shame China. And and this document is quite descriptive right so this document doesn't particularly deal with the uh, implications of the uh, indo-pacific strategy or actually say what the united states is doing in response but it does uh, highlight and draw attention to china's um, military modernization capabilities um, to go back real quickly to the belt and road um, issue i'd say you know another thing that jumps out in this report is that uh, you're absolutely right that the belt and road is portrayed as a strategic initiative here which i think it is you know that's the correct way to think about the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, it is a nebulous and large initiative. We don't know the precise number of countries that are even participating, or what projects fall into the ambit of the initiative, and what projects don't. What projects are older projects that have been rebranded? Um, incidentally, September 2018 does mark the five-year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and uh, actually, on that note, uh, just for a brief segue, our new magazine just dropped. So if um, if readers, uh, if listeners are interested. Uh, Nadej Rolan has a really good uh, five-year retrospective on the Belt and Road, specifically looking at its implications in Europe. But going back to the report for a second, um, it is, you know, one of the themes in these DOD reports for the past two to three years has been the PLA's growing expeditionary and global role. And that's been something that China's been quite open about since the release of the 2015 uh, White Paper on Defense, which outlined a um, a maritime first strategy that would really see the PLAN become a global navy. Um, and capabilities have lagged um, behind those ambitions in China, certainly. China just launched its um, second uh, aircraft carrier, its first indigenously built aircraft carrier. Uh, so now it operates a two-carrier fleet. Um, and the report continues to highlight the uh, People's Liberation Army Navy and Air Force uh, activities beyond the first island chain to the Western Pacific, uh, that's certainly been a significant component of the um, of the PLA's activities there and something that the United States has been watching quite closely. It does play an important part in a uh, Taiwan Strait contingency as well. But going back to the Belt and Road, uh, we do see a discussion in this report of China's overseas base, uh, uh, specifically the one in Djibouti, which is the PLA's uh, only overseas base still, um, although there are expectations that they might set up new bases elsewhere. There were rumors earlier this year of a base in um Vanuatu that the government denied, and more recently murmurs about a base at uh, Manas Island on uh, um, Papua New Guinea's territory. Um, also, uh, but both those territories, what they have in common is they provide excellent access to uh, logistics and resupply in the Western Pacific. Um, but what's interesting is the report also notes that um, the BRI sort of feeds into this expeditionary uh, ambition that the PLA has because. Uh, you know, I'll just read right here. It says the growth of China's global economic footprint makes its interests increasingly vulnerable to international and regional turmoil. Um, this, in turn, uh, leads the PLA to uh, have to address those threats. So, basically, you know, this kind of feeds in. It's sort of the American story of uh, you know, you grow a global uh, economic. Um, you're so vulnerable to global economic networks that that's when you start to step in and begin actually caring more about the global commons. Except in the Chinese case. Um, you know, it's not exactly supporting things like freedom of navigation, or at least not in the way that the United States um, sees it. So that I thought was an interesting um, point to underline here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the, the, the wording in the report suggested that, you know, these the should be thought of as a, a network of logistics hubs for China's military to eventually 
project power across the region and then eventually globally as well. Um, and I do think, you know, the, the other thing that you briefly mentioned that's important for us to keep in mind, because this is a annual report where the narrative um, is quite continuous, right, in terms of, you know, China's military capabilities are growing. Um, there's sort of a more comprehensive and clear notion of strategy. And some of that, some of that is right. I mean, I think if you look at some of the commentary that's coming out from China, um, some of it is traditional criticism. Uh, in terms of the United States and how it sort of hypes up this China threat narrative. But what I found interesting this time around was, um, and this was evident last year as well, some of the commentary coming back from China, including from Global Times, uh, actually emphasized the fact that, yeah, I mean, China is a increasingly global power and, you know, China will develop its capabilities. And really the, the main uh, sort of opposition was around the fact that, A, the United States and other great powers have done this. Why can't China do it? And then secondly, if, you know, why is the United States complaining so much, but other regional states aren't complaining as nearly as much uh, by the United States? I think you might have some issues and you might quibble with that a little bit. Um, but I do think that Chinese response is, uh, is interesting in the sense that they are speaking more openly and honestly about what they're doing, even though they sort of deny the, the U.S. hyping um, of the military threat. The other aspect of that that's interesting is, I mean, some of these the aspects of the report do hype up some of the elements of Chinese military capabilities and also conceal a little bit some of the weaknesses and vulnerabilities, right? I mean, those are mentioned in the report as they are in terms of the standard terminology. But this notion that um, the Chinese military is moving towards a greater notion of jointness and that the Chinese are thinking comprehensively in terms of military planning, I mean, Analysts have been pointing out for years that even as we sort of point at these linear increases in Chinese capabilities, we should be really wary about how the Chinese think about doctrine and, and war fighting. And that that might actually, as you pointed out, lag the actual technology and the equipment that the Chinese have. Right, right. Um, no, I think that's absolutely right. On the openness, you know, I think it's been uh, especially clear under Xi Jinping, um, right? I think mm -hmm. the 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 90th anniversary of the PLA in, uh, in 2016, I think um, that event especially made that clear, right? You had Xi in military fatigues as commander-in-chief of the PLA, a new title that he bestowed on himself, of course, uh, inspecting the Chinese military. And this was a really sort of bald-faced open show mm -hmm. of the, the fact that the PLA was a powerful military and it would um, operate increasingly globally. Um, all right, so, uh, you know, just before we wrap up today, there's a few other... I guess bits and bobs that I wanted to sort of drop for listeners that might be interested. Um, uh, so the first thing is this report, I believe, for the first time, uh, addresses the 1961 China-North Korea Treaty, which has been a an issue of interest, uh, especially in 2017 when a military conflict on the Korean Peninsula appeared a little bit more plausible than most people would like. Uh, that was a major concern, uh, the conditions under which China would seek to intervene. And the DoD report interestingly notes that it's unclear, uh, which I think is um, accurate, and uh, I think you know just shows that the United States uh, has reason to believe that there are conditions under which China would not come to North Korea's assistance. And the best guess about what those conditions are is that a scenario where North Korea is sort of seen as the instigator of a conflict or uses its nuclear weapons first or, or anything like that. Um, the other issue, if... Um, Listeners recall the uh, Doklam standoff between India and China, which was really hot last year, but has since kind of faded. Uh, the DoD report notes that uh, China still maintains uh, a heightened military presence in the surrounding region. So that standoff ended. Um, 
uh, specifically the you know the eyeball to eyeball encounter between Chinese and Indian military forces, but effectively the PLA has sort of uh, entrenched itself around the Doklam Plateau and on the Doklam Plateau. You can actually go see this if you uh, take a glance at the Google Earth imagery. There's just a ton of structures and and tents and vehicles and pathways that weren't there uh, just a little over a year ago. So that's uh, sort of the fallout of the Doklam uh, issue, I guess there. Um, and the other issue is on uh, missile defense. Uh, China's uh, indigenous missile defense efforts are still continuing, uh, the report finds, which is obviously unsurprising. There was a test earlier this year of, uh, of a mid-course uh, hit-to-kill interceptor that the Chinese are expecting to deploy pretty soon, I think, the, the DN-3, it's called. So I expect we might hear more about that um, next year. And the United States is also supposed to release its own uh, missile defense review, uh, which... As far as I hear, should come out sometime in the next few weeks, although I've been told that earlier this year, so we'll have to just see. Um, anything else to add, Prashant? Um, I think just one note, which is, um, you know, the, the mention of China, China's uh, maritime militia, which made its debut in, in last year's report. Um, there is a more sort of explicit and, and detailed accounting of how the Chinese have used uh, the maritime militia in terms of their vast array of capabilities in regions like the South China Sea and other maritime domains. So I thought, I mean, that is particularly significant because I think it shows gradually, as you noted, I mean, this report is about also what the DOD says publicly and is willing to classify, uh, declassify as you know, sort of unclassified information and what it sort of keeps uh, secret. Um, the fact that the Pentagon is speaking more openly about the maritime militia, really, even though it lags um, the, the years of analysis that, that has been done on the maritime militia, really signals the fact that they are worrying about the so-called, so as I mentioned, low-intensity coercion that the Chinese are placing on countries um, that are rivaling claimants in the South China Sea. So I thought um, that was particularly interesting, and I, I expect um, that you'll see a lot more of that in, in subsequent reports as well um, as the DOD gets bolder about what it says about the maritime domain. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So uh, to our listeners, so thanks as always for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, um, make sure you subscribe to keep up with future episodes. And if you have been a subscriber, but you haven't left us a review yet on either iTunes or Google Play, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back next week with more.